turn your attention, please, to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. If you don't have a Bible or you don't have the scripture loaded on your device, there are Bibles in a, a pocket in a chair near you, on the back side of a chair near you. And I encourage you to follow along. We will be looking at, and I'll be reading a lot of scripture this morning. John 1, verses 1 through 18, is, a, is my favorite Advent passage in the scripture. And I want to begin with an obvious statement. It's Christmas time. About as obvious as I can get, right? It is the Christmas season, or more generically, it is the holiday season. And there are characteristics that crop up during these special weeks for those of us who love and follow Jesus to be reminded of because we can get trapped in the things I'm about to describe to you. And we can sort of lose track of the stunning focus that is ours during Christmas. So I'm going to wave some caution flags for us to heed so that we may, beginning today, and some of you have begun this already, I know, but so that we may deliberately focus on keeping the main thing the main thing. That we would not be robbed of joy at the incarnation of the Son of God, Jesus. In other words, I'm encouraging us all to be really serious about the pursuit of joy in Jesus this Christmas. But here are some of the characteristics I'm talking about. They include calendars that are jam-packed and filled with activities and obligations galore. They're, most of them, good things, like decorating yards, houses, and trees, like accumulating gift lists and then struggling over whether or not we should give a gift to so-and-so because they didn't give us a gift last year. Writing Christmas cards or letters, getting them out on time, attending school programs, work parties, including ugly sweater parties, special church programs, travel to family gatherings, terrifying visits to Santa Claus. Grandma got run over by a reindeer. That gets stuck in your head. You are in trouble. I know from experience. And I'm sure I've missed some. And I also know this, that for some of you, these Christmas weeks can be very lonely and very sad. Earlier in this past week, Thanksgiving week, we heard from a dear friend of ours, 40 years we have known her, and she's a recent widow, and she called us on the day before Thanksgiving, I think, and I asked Renette, how's she doing? And she said, I think she's just getting through it because Jill doesn't have Bob. 
didn't have him this Thanksgiving. Won't have him at Christmas. But he's with Jesus. So after four or six or more weeks of such frenetic living, this can happen. A fog of physical and emotional dullness and exhaustion can just settle on us. And it may result in precious little time to invest in zeroing in on this one amazing truth that I want to emphasize today from John 1, 1 through 5, and it is that God came down. The Word, the living Word, who is Jesus, came down to make himself known and to redeem his people. God came down to die and then to live again for the sake of the glory of his Father and for the sake of his people, those whom he came to save. That is what Advent is all about. That is the, the ball for us to keep our eye on as we live during these weeks of December 1 through December 31st and beyond. The first part of the Gospel of John is so magnificent, and I want to pray together. You know that um, it, we, we can think of, we can think of, of services like this, gatherings like this, as containing a part that's worship, it's music, it's reading of the word, it's praying, and then there's the preaching, as if preaching is not worship. But the worship continues as I seek to be a vessel whom God speaks through, and as you listen, that's your offering of worship. If you uh, would like to kneel, you can. It's not required. But Father, we thank you for Christ. And we thank you for the word, the living word, who is Jesus, and for the printed word that we have before us in our laps or on our devices. Because therein we find your precious son revealed to us. I want to ask you now for these two favors. That by the power of your presence and spirit, you would use me and work in and through me so that I am uh, a spokesperson, a mouthpiece for you. I'm weak. I need your help, so I pray help. And then for these here, I pray that you would grant them ears to hear and hearts to absorb the wonder of the truth that I'll stress over and over and over again that the word is living and he is Christ some here don't know you they're far from you they are according to your word hopeless and helpless and spiritually dead and may not know it Pray that the truth would dawn in their lives and that they would see their need and that you would grant them repentance and faith to trust and love Christ. And others here are followers of Jesus who have great needs and you know how to meet those needs. 
want to be encouraged today to follow and love and obey and enjoy Jesus. So do that, Lord, for us. Help me and help us and be pleased to communicate with us through your word in the strong and precious name of Christ. Amen. John 1, 1 through 5. I want to give credit where credit is due. I received considerable help in preparation for this sermon uh, from a few pages of commentary from Dr. D.A. Carson. Uh, Pastor Josh, who's not here today, can I just mention um, he's not mad at us, nor is he sick. But um, there's, a, there's a partner church in this community called um, King's Cross, and they meet near the Mexican restaurant with the orange thingamabob over the door. Los Rancheros, yeah. Uh, and their pastor, Dan, is gone away, and the worship pastor was going to preach, and he's a friend of Josh's from way back in high school in high school, Florida. And while the friend is preaching, he asked Josh to come and lead in worship. So we lent him out for that purpose. But Josh uh, emailed me these pages of commentary from D.A. Carson on chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and very, very valuable to me. I want to give credit where credit is due and not be guilty of uh, stealing stuff. I'll read chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. This is the English Standard Version. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The Apostle John's purpose in his gospel is found very close to the end of the gospel in chapter 20. So as we begin at the start of the book, I call your attention to the near end of the book in 20, 30 through 30, 31. And here's John's purpose for writing. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. And right from the start, in verse 1, chapter 1, John began pursuing this purpose. And I have two purposes in this sermon of mine, and the first is the same as John's. I'm preaching this text so that you may, and I've been praying this way, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the capital W Word, 
the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And my second purpose is this, that you may respond to the incarnation of Jesus Christ with worship, awe, and wonder. Make that top drawer in your life. Battle those characteristics I listed. Worship, awe, and wonder. Now for the body of the sermon. I have four points. First, the meaning and impact of the word word. You see it in verse 1? We can tell that it is an important word because it occurs three times in the space of 17 words in the ESV in this verse. And it's capitalized. There's a big W because word is personalized or better yet, divinized. It refers to the person of God the Son. And right away in verse 1, Christ is referred to as the Word. Um, the, the Greek word, the New Testament Greek word here for word is logos. And Logos was widely used in the civilization of the first century and found in different contexts, such as in Stoicism and Gnosticism and in other ways. And I don't have time to expand on that. D.A. Carson can do it. To the Jewish mindset, a word was something concrete. Now listen to this. This is really important. Because we tend to think of words as just being mere verbal communication, but they mean something more to the Jewish mindset and obviously to the, to the Apostle John. A word was something concrete. It was close to being an action or event or deed and beyond merely sounds coming out of a mouth. I want to illustrate that by going to the Old Testament We'll find out how the Hebrew term for word is used in three ways with reference to God and how he works and how he acts. First, in creation. And the Smiths shared this with us at the table where the candles are. In Genesis 1-3, we read that God spoke by the power of his words and he created. And it's an ongoing pattern in Genesis 1. But for the sake of time, just this, let there be light. God said, and there was light. And then Psalm 33, verse 6, with reference to creation. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Isn't that amazing? Can you imagine that? Several nights ago, we went out in our driveway and looked up. And it's great when it's not as hot around here so that the air isn't as hazy all the time and just loaded with moisture. It was clear. Oh, the host. And God just breathed. And they were. He spoke and he created. Second, we see the activity of God, the actions of God by his personal personified word in Revelation. 
lots of examples, but here's only two. Jeremiah 1, 4, the word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah says. Coming is an action. Saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And then in a similar way in Isaiah 9, verse 8, the Lord has sent a word against Jacob. Again, God that's an action. He sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, it says. That's the second one. And here's the third, the third one. We see that the word of the Lord brings about salvation and deliverance. The word has power to save, in other words. Psalm 107, verse 20. He, that is God, sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from destruction. And also from Isaiah 55, 10, and 11. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but, but it waters the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word, God says, that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall, here's the activity, accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Carson provides a helpful quote regarding the meaning and impact of logos, word. He says, in short, God's word in the, old, in the Old Testament is his powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation and the personification of that word, capital W, makes it suitable for John to apply it as a title for God's ultimate self-disclosure in the person of his own son, the word. Did you get that? That's why referring to the son, who is the self-disclosure uh, self of God, the use of the word word to describe that self-disclosure disclosure is so right on target certainly it is because it comes from God the, the mind of God Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2 in the New Testament come to mind when I read that quote from above from Carson it's so beautiful listen to this long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophet but in these days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So that's, that's number one. Here's number two in, the, in your outline. Jesus Christ is God. Look at verse one again. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus Christ, in other words, has always been and will always be eternal. How's that for reinforcing redundancy? In this text, I'm really thankful for redundancy because it drives home very important points about the nature of God, about Christ and who he is. Being eternal is an unmistakable mark of divinity. In the beginning was the Word. To put it another way, in the beginning, the Word, who is Christ, already was. 
because he had always been. Jesus Christ, the Son, has always been God and will always be God. There was never a time when he wasn't. And therefore, the Son, that's redundancy on purpose. Therefore, the Son, the Word, is not a created being and most certainly not some sort of uh, divine afterthought as if God had missed something. An afterthought that he came up with in order to mercifully and justly address the sinfulness of created mankind that he must have been surprised at. Not the case. Listen to how Paul describes Jesus in chapter 2 of Philippians, verse 6, please. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a bondservant, being born in the likeness of man. In other words, the word, Jesus, was, and he continues to be, divine and equal with, with God. He was divine and equal with God when he humbled himself, condescended from immeasurable heights of glory to be born in an animal shed in Bethlehem as the God-man. And I'll return to Philippians later on in the sermon. And then verse 1 says, And the word was with God. With being a really crucial word. This phrase with God means that Jesus was and is a distinct person from God the Father, but he was no less God. Now we're entering into the territory of the doctrine of the Trinity, and it can cause you a brain ache, but lean into it. He was and is with the Father, but also distinguishable from him. And at times, the Lord Jesus himself spoke plainly about being God himself and about his relationship with his Father. So, for example, look at John 14, 5 through 11. Y you, should, you should look at this, mark it in your Bible, perhaps, and look at it again later on. And in the context of that chapter, the Lord was preparing his disciples for his crucifixion that was coming in just a matter of a few days he was preparing his disciples for his death and ultimate departure back to heaven. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known the Father also. From now on, you do not know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father's in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that this is amazing. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. So now listen carefully to this. The Word, the Son of God, is a distinct person of the triune God. There's Father and Son 
and Holy Spirit, and yet they are one God. Three persons, one God. So important for us to, 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 to embrace this. This historic doctrine is so precious, and it protects us as believers from heretical beliefs about Jesus, such as that he's a small G God, among other gods, picked from a menu, or that he's merely a great rabbi and teacher, or that he's just a fine example of ethics and morality. And if you talk with other people about religion and if you share the gospel with them, you may hear that back from them. Oh, that's good for you. Jesus was really a fine man. And then moving on in verse 1, the Word was with God, or was God. The Word was God. Scripture in Hebrews 1.3 reads this way, He is the radiance, Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint. That word, imprint, is is really neat. The Greek word is a word for character, meaning he's not a copy, not a counterfeit. He's the real God, the exact imprint of God's nature. And the meaning of these words is so glorious. It's worth pondering and rejoicing in as we celebrate this Christmas time. Dr. Wayne Grudem wrote this, God the Son exactly duplicates the being and nature of God the Father in every way. Whatever attributes or power God the Father has, God the Son has them as well. He's the radiance of the glory of God, not a copy. And I'll repeat this over and over again. He is God. from the Lord Jesus himself in John 10, when he identified himself as the shepherd of his people, he put it very succinctly. He says, I and the Father are one. Now, now look at uh, verses 27 through 30. This just is so sweet. My sheep hear my voice, Jesus says, and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. He is God. And that brings me then to verses 2 and 3, and that's number 3 in your outline if you're following along. Jesus Christ is God, part 2. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I just, I love that. I love the righteous redundancy of these verses. They reinforce verse 1, that the Word, who is Christ, is the Son of God, and he is indeed God himself. And verses 2 and 3 are really plain. Before there was a beginning... The word was, and we know what happened in the beginning, don't we? The, the parallel verses that I'm about to, to give you were read by the Smiths 
in the beginning, God, Genesis 1.1. And in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. And what did God do in the beginning? He created the heavens and the earth. He created everything that is, and he did it. This is a neat term. I'll mess up the pronunciation, I'm sure, even though I worked on it for hours. No, a minute. He did it ex nihilo, out of nothing. He spoke all that is into being. And what did the word do in the beginning? John 1, verse 3, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. How did God create? By the power of his word. Let there be light and there was light. And on and on it goes in chapter 1. And then what about Christ, and the living, who is the living word? What about his role in creation? Here's Colossians 1, 15 through 16. He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, doesn't mean he's a created being. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So at the beginning, God was creating. At the beginning, Jesus was creating. I think this term is, I, I hope it's acceptable theologically. Christ is co-creator with the Father, like this. I love, I love Hebrews 1.8. But of the Son, God says, you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of your hands. Wow. And now here's number four in the outline. It says number three. That's my error. It's, it's not David's. He, he produced the sheet in your worship guide, and I'm grateful for that. Here's number four. Jesus Christ is God, part three, verses four and five. In him was life, and the life was the light of of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, light and life and darkness are huge biblical themes. And I don't have time, even in, even in just the Gospel of John, to cover all of the ground that we could. But verses 4 and 5 can be read and understood in two ways. First, in terms of creation, that is, Looking back, focusing on the word at creation, the role of Christ at creation, his presence and his power as the living word. Now, this will help as a foundation for what I have to say afterwards. Uh, John 5, 26, Jesus says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also life in himself. And at creation, the word, Jesus, was life 
and his life was the light of men. What does that mean? And Carson is helpful here. Quote, the eternal self-existing life of the word was so dispensed, that is, given out at creation, that it became the light of the human race. And Carson isn't sure what all that means. He says it's not clear whether John is thinking of our having been made in the image of God, Genesis 1:27, or if he's thinking of the reflection of himself and of his glory as the Son of God and his power in the universe that he's created, or of the more specific revelation of himself coming down, taking on human flesh and being born in the manger in Bethlehem as the Son of God. It might be all of those. But here's the point. The word was and is the life, and that life was and is the light of men. And second, verses 4 and 5 can be understood, and I think they should be understood, as anticipation of explicit gospel declarations by Jesus in, in the Gospel of John, especially in terms of life and light and darkness. I have time for just one. And it's found in John 8, 12. Mark it. It's so great. Turn to it. Follow along as I read it, if you would. John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, don't, don't miss this. Jesus spoke to them, saying, th this, is, this is the living word, Jesus Christ. Speaking words, small w, that are darkness shattering and eter eternal life giving words. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Don't miss this. Please don't miss this. Here, the living word is saying to each of us in the world, I am the light. Without him, the condition of the world and of our lives is darkness. It is utter darkness. Um, have you ever been in a totally dark space? I mean, totally dark. Years ago, when uh, Renette and I lived in Peoria, Arizona, which was a beginning to be a sprawling uh, suburb of the city of Phoenix and pastoring a church there that was known as West Valley Baptist Church at the time. We had the privilege because a mall developer bought, some, bought, bought our little church and gave us a million bucks. We were, we were uh, enabled to build a beautiful facility. And in, this is not unusual in Arizona in the desert. No windows in the worship center. And I don't know, I think it was maybe at Christmas time even, I asked that all the lights be shut off in order to illustrate darkness. And you know what we, what we saw? We saw evidence of poor construction. There were little, <laughs> little beams of light from all over where the, the sort of where the walls, the octagonal walls had come together. But if you've ever been in a totally dark space, it's, it's disorienting, at least, if not scary. Without the living word, 
the condition of the world and of our lives is darkness, sin, evil, eternal death, because we have all sinned against God. And apart from Christ, we don't like it when the light shines on us and shows us our, our sin. But Jesus is, is the light. And according to this, as you interpret the text, he's not a light. He is the light. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And he is the light because he's God. And he offers the light of life to whoever will follow him. And to follow him, we must stop chasing after, looking for real life and light in other places and in other ways. But why wouldn't we stop and turn to follow him? He's God, and only he is the light. Uh, of course, you, you, you maybe can just say, well, that's common sense about this. Of course the light will reveal our the condition of our hearts and our sin, the stuff that we don't want other people to see, he'll show it to us on the way to granting us turning and repenting of the sin. But that's not, that's not a bad thing. John Piper says that's a gift like getting an early diagnosis for your cancer. And the power of the word will excise the cancer of your sin. Take it out. What a great Christmas present that is. When you see your sin, when you repent of that sin and put your faith in Jesus alone, you'll no longer live in darkness, and you'll have the light of life. Isn't John 8, 12 great? But how do I do this? Why? Because Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's why and to make us right with God, to, as, the, as the Bible says, to bring us to God and to restore us to God's purpose for us, which is worship, true worship that lasts for all of eternity. I, I told you I'd, I'd come back to Philippians chapter 2. Would you go there, please, with me? I love this passage so much. Here, in the context of his writing, Paul is calling the people of the church of Philippi and the people of the church in Redeemer or whatever church you're from. He's calling us to humble ourselves like Jesus. And this contains the good news of the gospel. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, Philippians 2, verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a slave, servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, even though he was totally innocent and without sin. Therefore, God has highly exalted him 
Why do you exalt him? Because he was alive. You don't exalt a dead guy who's buried forever. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You could say that those last verses have so much to do with the, with, with, with the purpose of the gospel to restore us to be worshipers, eternal worshipers of God. God's Son, Philippians 2, left his rightful place in the fellowship of the Trinity, in the glories of heaven, to take on human flesh as the God-man. You can't even calculate how far he condescended to do that. And he lived a spotless, holy, absolutely righteous life and then died on a Roman cross to pay the penalty, the death penalty for sin of others, not for himself because he never sinned. He paid the death penalty for sin for all who will believe on him for, being, for, for, for rescue from sin and from eternal death. In other words, he took God's judgment upon himself as our substitute and he died in our place. He took upon himself the righteous just wrath of God against sinners and suffered that wrath as he died on the cross and then he rose from the tomb because God's anger and judgment against us rebels was totally satisfied. There was no reason for him to remain dead. So I'm closing the sermon. I have questions for you, two of them. Do you, or if you don't, will you believe that Jesus is the Word? Capital W, the living Word, the Christ, the Son of the living God. John wrote this gospel with that goal in mind, that you would believe. And I preached with the same goal. I urge you, turn from yourself your self-sufficiency and your sin and trust in Jesus alone. And the second question is, will you respond to the incarnation, to the blessing of the arrival of the Son of God born at Bethlehem? Will you respond to the living word with praise and worship and awe and wonder before him. Oh Lord, may it be so. Please, by your spirit, be at work in each heart and mind in this room. work to enliven because you are the life and the, the light. Enliven people outside of Christ. Give them eyes, give them understanding of their sin. 
of separation from, from you. And grant them the blessing of confession of that sin before you and repentance, a turning from that sin, a turning from that to Christ the Word. Who has done everything needed for them to be restored to you, to be rescued. Be at work in hearts and minds. And for those of us who belong to you in Christ, renew in us wonder and awe and true worship before the living word today. May this mind and heart set dominate us as individuals, as, as couples, as families. In all that we do, may this mind and heart set dominate that you, dear Christ, are worthy of all the worship we can give you. Do this, please, we ask. In your precious name, amen. Now we're going to be moving to communion. And I want to give um, instructions to you, especially for those of you who are visiting with us, and, and we welcome you to, wor to our worship gathering. Worship leaders can come, servers can come to the to the tables and prepare to share the elements with people. We're, we're coming to the table to remember that Christ, the living word, died as our substitute. He died in our place for our sins. The, the bread represents his body. The, the, the juice represents his blood shed for us. We come to remember so in a sense, it's a memorial, but it's not a memorial in the same sense as we have in, in our culture where we remember the lives of people who've died and they're, they're dead. The body may or may not be present, but they're, they're not there. But we remember, we remember that, 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 that Christ died, and apart from him, there would be no salvation for us. And then we rejoice that Christ is very much alive. He's been raised from the dead. He's worthy of our praise. And if he were not dead, there'd be no point in coming to the table and gathering for worship. So if you've turned from your sinful ways and you've embraced Christ by faith for your salvation, if you're a baptized believer, you're invited to share in communion. And here's the method. A and if you're not a believer, please, you don't have to leave. You can just observe. And if you're not a believer and you want to know more, after the service, I'll be available and David will be available. There'll be friends of yours, perhaps, who will be available to, to tell you more about Jesus and his good news. Um, but, but here's how we go about it logistically. When I, when I give you the signal, um, the first row will go that way, then the second that way, then the third, and when you have the elements, you'll, you'll take the bread and then you'll dip it in the cup, 
and go back to your place and remain standing and worship as you're led in music. Or go out that way and return to your seats down the center aisle. And the same thing will happen here. Okay, so Shane will be the first one. He'll lead the way. If, you, if you're not going to participate, you can just remain where you are seated. You're welcome to do that. Nobody's going to take notice and be aghast at the fact that you're not doing it. First Corinthians now. I'm just debating whether I should do it now. This will give you an opportunity to prepare yourself before you continue in worship by sharing at the table. First Corinthians 11. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. So quietly, whatever you need to do to, 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 to focus in, close your eyes and quietly reflect upon your life. Does the Spirit bring up in your life an awareness of sin that you've not confessed and you've not repented of? On the basis of the Word of God, which says, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The promise is sure. If, if those sins come to mind, confess them and receive forgiveness and cleansing. When you prepare yourself, soul and spirit, when you prepare to remember Jesus and honor him and rejoice in him, the living word, Share the elements together. 